This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm one of the interviewers on the channel Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Steve Brady about his recent book titled Chained to History, Slavery and U.S. Foreign Relations to 1865, which was published by Cornell University Press this year, 2022. In the book, Dr. Brady places slavery at the center of the story of America's place in the world um, in the years from around its founding to the American Civil War. Um, Dr. Brady follows the military, economic, and moral lines of the diplomatic challenges that come from attempting to manage on the global stage this policy of enslaving human beings. Um, The book is really quite interesting. It takes a new angle in a lot of ways to things that many listeners might be quite familiar with. And yet, through this angle, there are quite a lot of different things that we learn. So thank you, Dr. Brady, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So I was wondering if you could start off by introducing yourself a bit and explain how you came to write this book. Sure. So again, uh, obviously, I'm Steve Brady, uh, and I'm a a history professor at the George Washington University in downtown Washington, D.C. I'm a diplomatic historian by training and uh, have written a book previously on U.S.-German relations in the 1950s, and my focus overwhelmingly had had been on the Cold War. So how did I come to this topic? Very, uh, very, very uh, circuitous route, but the main main impetus for this was teaching, just like the book I'm working on now, my classes gave me the inspiration. I was teaching a course for several years on early American foreign relations. And it occurred to me that slavery was a very important part of early American history. So I decided to assign something to my class on slavery and foreign relations and said, well, I'll go and find something and assign it to, to the kids. And I couldn't find anything in the usual places. 
in the library online, uh, some database searches, I finally found one chapter of one book, a book by Don Fehrenbacher called The Slaveholding Republic, which is really a, a phenomenal book, but it was just one chapter. So I signed that and I said to myself, oh, someone really should write a book on this topic. And then I started working on my second book and it wasn't on that topic and it got preempted. So I started working on another book and it got preempted. And so I said, well, what am I going to work on? And this idea came back into my head and I put it off for a little while because I assumed someone would preempt this one too, because it seemed to me such an obvious topic, but I did not get, uh, I, I did not get scooped on this one. So it really comes from, it really came from my teaching and, and wanting to have something to assign to students and realizing there wasn't much. That actually really explains in a lot of ways the sort of clarity of the book. Um, I could see as I was reading it how I could assign individual chapters and they would make coherent sense to students. Um, so I often personally find that books written with students in mind often can be clearer to readers. So in this case, I think that worked out nicely. Thank you. Yeah, I really wanted this to be a book that could be assigned to to classes that students would, I'll put it this way, students might actually want to read or at least read parts of. Yeah, absolutely. So to get into some of this, these topics, right, um, we're probably going to move roughly chronologically through the book. Obviously, to listeners, this is a whistle-stop tour. So if you want to go into all of the examples, particularly some of the specific anecdotes are quite interesting. Um, you'll probably have to read the book, but at least we can give you a taste. Um, so to start off with, to give us a taste, in the beginning of the book, you look at how US foreign policy in Latin America, especially during the John Quincy Adams administration, there was a lot of impact. The debates about slavery did actually relate to what the US was trying to do in Latin America. And in a lot of ways, it seems, impacted the failure of U.S. or John Quincy Adams' attempt at foreign policy in Latin America. How were these things related? Absolutely right. Yeah, I I would summarize it by saying that Adams, John Quincy Adams, really wanted to increase cooperation in the hemisphere, and especially with Europe in mind as a way of warding off European attempts to gain influence again in these independent nations, newly independent nations in Latin America. And slavery was a significant factor in preventing the realization of this policy. So I, I began with a story that I thought was really uh, just frankly interesting. In April of 1825, Adams received an invitation to send representatives to what Bolivar and company were, were calling an amphictyonic Congress, which we now call the Congress of Panama. And Adams and his Secretary of State, uh, Henry Clay, just jumped at it. They were very enthusiastic. They thought it would have no downsides and many upsides, including one that was very important to them was strengthening the Monroe Doctrine without requiring a police effort on the part of the United States if Latin American nations of the United States were able to come together in some way. And 
Adams himself also viewed this as what he called a token of respect for Latin American republics, showing the new republics that we considered them to be equals. But you ran into problems for a few reasons and with a, a few people. The vice president at the time, uh, John C. Calhoun, whom we might mention later if he comes up, was opposed to this. Uh, and very redoubtable character, Senator Andrew Jackson, who will become president later, was opposed for a number of reasons. And one of the things that I try to avoid doing in the book is overclaiming. It wasn't just slavery, but slavery was a big part of it. Certainly, they didn't want economic competition with Latin America. But the most significant issue was, in fact, slavery and the fear on the part of many Americans that cooperation with Latin America would undermine slavery, that the Amphictyonic Congress, Congress of Panama, would take up the slave trade issue. And if they took up the slave trade issue, the implication might be that they would take up now or eventually the issue of abolition. And a second factor that caused opposition, especially within Congress, to authorizing the sending of delegates to the Congress of Panama was Haiti. Haiti would be represented, and there was this sense that you could not possibly, this horror, that you could not possibly send Americans to meet with delegates from a country that had become a country by its its slaves rising up and killing a lot of uh, their former their former masters. And so there was a great debate, a great hue and cry about this in Congress. And finally, Congress approves the dispatch of, of representatives. One, two representatives, one dies on the way and so isn't able to show up. But there was quite a bit of delay with the result that this whole idea, which one historian, uh, Samuel Flagg Beam, is one of the fathers of U.S. diplomatic history, called a noble experiment, uh, that there were no concrete results that the United States was unable to participate in any serious way because of the delay over, mostly over the question of slavery. Now, scholars these days say, well, a big factor in why it wasn't successful was the lack of unity among the Latin American nations themselves. But it was certainly a significant fact. Slavery was certainly a significant factor in preventing American participation that might have resulted in uh, a greater uh, success and a greater result. And the reason for this was a fear of any attack on slavery and a need to protect and preserve the institution in the hemisphere. And so then this, as you show, is not just a fear that impacts this one area of policy. In fact, this is a fear that continues in a lot of senses, um, and also therefore encompasses as well fears and questions around freed people who were enslaved. Um, and so can you tell us about how the debates over this particular population, freed formerly enslaved people, um, resulted in a problem between the US and the British uh, in terms of battle lines and borders um, this happened, it seemed, a number of times, both at the end of the Revolutionary War, as well as before and during the War of 1812, kind of what lines counted as freeing and how did this create diplomatic issues between these two countries? 
Right, great question. So the issue of uh, freed slaves uh, and self-freed slaves was a major problem for Anglo-American relations for quite some time. And the way that it gets resolved is just fascinating. So I'll, I'll get to that at the end here, I, I guess. But, you know, the Treaty of Paris that ended, officially ended the War of the American Revolution uh, had an article, Article 7, that said that the British could not, uh, if my memory is correct, and I don't have the exact uh, quote in mind, uh, they could not carry away any Negroes or other property that belonged to Americans. Okay, so how we, how were we to interpret this? There were already uh, freed people, freed slaves in uh, British possession, essentially, uh, who had gotten to the British lines and been freed in early on in 1775, the royal governor of Virginia, uh, Lord Dunmore, had issued a proclamation saying that if a slave could escape and get to British lines and then uh, carry weapons and, and fight for the British, that person would be forever free. Then four years later, the British commander in chief, uh, Henry Clinton, said that any slave who escaped the British lines would be free. So this then encompassed the elderly, the infirm, women, children. So they didn't necessarily have to take up take up arms. So what we ended up with is a pretty fair number of Southern slaves escaping. Uh, and one estimate is that about 5% of slaves in the South took advantage of this, this opportunity. So we get the, the Treaty of Paris in Article 7 and this statement that you can't carry away property, including human property. Uh, at, and the question becomes, what does this mean? Does this mean slaves taken during the war, or does this mean the British can't take any more than they already have and leave? In 1783, Washington, George Washington uh, himself meets with the British commander-in-chief, the Orangetown Conference after Orangetown, New York, where it takes, takes place. And Washington accuses the British of violating the Treaty of Paris, Article 7. He says, You're taking, you've taken and are taking... Uh, freed slaves away, and the promise was that you wouldn't do this. This is what was in the in the treaty, uh, and the British just say no. What the treaty said was that we can't take any additional slaves or property. Now, a couple years later, 1786, John Jay, one of the great legal minds of the new country, said, "Well, what we can do is the British will not." will not give these slaves up. There's no way the British are going to say, we've freed these people, now we're going to send them back to slavery. So he suggests, how about compensation? How about compensation of the owners? Uh, and this isn't worked out when Jay is sent in 1794 to negotiate the Jay, what we call the Jay's Treaty, the Jay Treaty or Jay's Treaty uh, that tries to deal with some of the issues that 
that continued after, between the British and the Americans after the, the War of the American Revolution. And the House of Representatives, in fact, sought to deny funding to implement the, the treaty due in part to the issue of the British refusal to uh, compensate for slaves in, taken during the war. In fact, uh, the Jay Treaty says nothing about that. I, I just found this, talking about anecdotes, interesting that uh, a piece appeared at that point in 1796 by someone named who called himself Camillus, who said returning slaves was impossible. It, you couldn't do it. Slaves were no longer property when they were freed. They couldn't be returned and said that returning a freed human being to slavery was something odious or immoral, which gave me the title of my chapter. Well, it turns out Camillus was uh, one of the more famous founders now. Uh, he was, uh, this was Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton. And so the result was the, the uh, freed slaves from the uh, War of the American Revolution were neither returned nor was compensation ever paid. So you'd think that, fast forwarding to the War of 1812, then you'd think that Americans would have learned their lesson about that. But Article One of the Treaty of Ghent, which ends the, uh, formally ends the war, uh, the War of 1812, we end up with a uh, almost complete replay of post-revolutionary war debates. The peace commissioners at Ghent didn't do any better than the peace commissioners at Paris had had done. They used, if you look at things in parallel, they used very similar language in Article 1 of the Treaty of Ghent to Article 7 of the Treaty of Paris. And so the British again said, this doesn't require us to, <laughs> this doesn't require us to return uh, slaves that were taken prior to the the treaty being the treaty being reached uh, and this wording being agreed upon. So you get uh, an interesting situation, and this is something that I, I get into in the book a bit more, but I'll just say that John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts, uh, famous for his opposition to slavery in his post-presidential career, really pushes hard uh, he was U.S. minister to London at the time, and he led the way, determined to advance U.S. interests, even if he wasn't uh, so strongly pro-slavery. And what happened, to make a long story that I deal with at some length short, bilateral relations, uh, bi excuse me, bilateral diplomacy just couldn't solve this problem. There was this lengthy diplomatic impasse, uh, the British simply returned, and I've got some interesting stories about this in the book, the British simply wouldn't return any slaves taken before the Treaty of Ghent was signed. Uh, now, so the British are clearly set in refusal. They view it as not just impossible legally, but morally uh, uh, unacceptable to return somebody to slavery once they've been once they've been freed. So there's this back and forth from 1815 on between John Quincy Adams and the Foreign Secretary Castlereagh, uh, the British Foreign Secretary. And Castlereagh agreed, in principle at least, to compensation to be paid to the, the former masters, 
former slaveholders. One of the reasons that Adams was pushing this so hard was that he and Secretary of State Monroe were feeling domestic pressure from slaveholders, which is also something I get into the book. There's a lot of domestic pressure to use foreign policy in a way that would advance that would advance slavery's cause. And finally, in 1816, they agreed to allow what they called a friendly power, so a third party to decide the issue. And both decided that Tsar Alexander I of Russia was a good choice for that. He would be neutral. And so uh, the Tsar was given the task of deciding between the two sides. This is just fascinating to me. The, the Tsar of Russia, working from a French text, decided an issue of uh, English grammar and construction that the two Anglo-American powers were unable to, to decide themselves. And without getting into too much detail, he gave a kind of vague answer that the Americans were entitled to something, but not other things, and let the British and uh, Americans make the decision as to what compensation would be given to Americans. Uh, And this, probably one of the goals was, if you come to a vague conclusion, you don't end up with hostility from either side. But in 1826, the agreement is reached. It takes a little while to get it all paid off and a lump sum is given. And this issue that had been simmering since 1775 was finally resolved. Uh, And the points that I make about this to finish up on this one, the U.S. had diplomatic success in the end in terms that might be pretty offensive to us now, but they'd asserted the right on the international stage to hold human beings as property. They asserted on the Ameri- on the world stage that slavery was a significant factor in U.S. foreign policy. And finally, that American foreign policy, the tools of the American state in the world, would be used to advance the interest of slaveholders. And so the relations between Britain and the United States were not helped by any of this, but the cause of American slaveholders certainly was uh, was advanced by American foreign relations. And I'm glad you mentioned the Russian czar, because that was definitely one of the things that I was not expecting to come across. Um, yeah, in opening, in opening your book, I was not expecting the Russian czar to come up um, in fact, twice. We might get to the second one later. Um, so that was, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was definitely kind of caused me to sit up in my seat. Um, but this idea as well that it was sort of such a thorny issue that bilateral relations struggled to deal with it um, brings me on really nicely to my next question because we've already talked about how this is impacting across decades, right? The Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. But in fact, as you then go on to show, even throughout, it, it continues from the 1830s to the American Civil War in the 1860s, slavery continues to be this frustrating thing between British and American relations. Um, And that even gets in the way when they have policy goals that unite them, 
um, and doesn't seem to be something that can be resolved. So you talk about this in terms of the suppression of the transatlantic slave trade um, and the Negro Seamen Acts. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, you know, kind of extend the story. This this doesn't get resolved. How does this? How does slavery continue to cause tensions between British and Americans from the 1830s to 1860s? Uh, the short answer is it does in a very big way, but uh, you probably want a little more than that. Uh, yeah, the um, the issue of slavery. One could write a book specifically. I found uh, one could write a book specifically on. Anglo-American relations and slavery and still come up with a couple hundred pages uh, and almost all of it would, would be about problems in the relationship that slavery caused. Uh, so the slave trade, uh, the United States actually banned the slave trade bef- uh, somewhat before the British. They both, they both banned it in 1808, but the United States does. The Constitution provided that the uh, when when ratified provided that the United States government couldn't ban the slave trade until 1808, and on January 1st, 1808, the slave trade is banned, and so one assumes that one assumes that the United States is going to go all out in trying to stop the slave trade. The pride that Americans had in going first would just be a motivation there, but. It wasn't after the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, yeah, so I, I should I should say before I go on that uh, it was not necessarily the first priority, and the first priority was was to protect American shipping from from uh, interruption and harassment by the British. The War of eighteen twelve has complicated and debated causes, but Americans from early on during the war had convinced themselves at least that the issue that brought the war more than anything else was British impressment of, of American sailors, so British boarding American ships and taking sailors off, an insult to America, an insult to our flag. Uh, and so this becomes uh, the most important sticking point until the British would renounce impressment, the United States government's over uh, administrations over and over said, you cannot board and search American flagged ships uh, for slaves uh, in the trade or for equipment for slavery. So what this meant was that slavers would be safe if they hoisted up the American flag. The British Navy couldn't do anything about it. And this frustrated Castlereagh from the beginning because he was trying to put together this interlocking uh, set of treaties with various countries that would ban the trade. Uh, And during the period we're discussing, uh, U.S. officials were marked. I, I think one of the things you absolutely have to emphasize is U.S. officials had a real strong sense of Anglophobia throughout this period. Uh, And they started asking questions like, were the British crusading against the slave trade? Uh, Just in order to obtain commercial and imperial advantage, they talked a good dance about wanting to do the moral thing about ending the slave trade. But were they really trying to get the United States uh, to to truckle to their version of uh, world empire? Uh, and 
this it's caused a lot of debate among historians. Uh, I think the consensus, if there is one, would be British policies certainly were opportunistic, uh, that they really wanted to suppress the slave trade. The uh, British government after British government was con- committed to it. But if it helped advance, say, British commercial interests, that was just uh, serendipitously a nice thing. So the U.S. is trying to avoid the gravitational pull uh, of the British Empire. And so the Anglophobia was a big factor. They were attributing British acts, uh, actions to ulterior motives. A compounding factor, though, was uh, the fear that anti uh, anti-slave trade actions on the part of the British and that crusading was uh, a, a leading edge, a wedge to uh, bring abolition into, into the picture. Uh, and this had a huge impact on American diplomacy. It nearly kills off the Treaty of Washington, this, the 1842 Webster-Ashburton Treaty. Uh, and finally, the agreement is made because of the, the, the British will not renounce impressment. And so finally, in the, the uh, Webster-Ashburton Treaty, the Treaty of Washington of 1842, they agreed to something that had been tried before and renounced by the U.S. government, but now we're desperate to do something, uh, which is hunting in pairs. So a British ship and a U.S. ship would, to the extent possible, hunt in pairs. And if a suspected slaver hoisted up the American flag, the Americans could, could board it. Uh, and decide if it was uh, if it was a slave ship, and I I deal with this in some depth in the book. But let's let me just say that this kind of thing went on and on uh, until 1862, when Lincoln agrees to President Lincoln agrees during the Civil War to allow the British to board and search and seize American ships and. The reason for that is not that Americans and British had come to some sort of friendship, uh, quite the opposite. Lincoln was more concerned with the issue of British intervention in the Civil War. So the problem itself is never solved on its own. It's solved by the fact that American policymakers had a more pressing concern at that point, which was to to keep the, the United States together. Interesting. Um, And this, as you said, you do go into it in more detail in the actual book. Um, But I think that that gives a kind of a good idea of just how complicated some of this was. There wasn't necessarily a really clear um, way out to balance all these different pieces. Um, And so to kind of demonstrate this, to think about how this was such a key thing, and even if we go, oh, we're only going to look at American foreign policy in this period. Therefore, we don't need to think about slavery because that's just domestic. Actually, how does, as you argue, quote, the case of Texas demonstrate the extent to which slavery was a central element in the foreign policy thinking of America's political elite? We've seen in some ways the interaction between domestic and foreign. But you argue that Texas shows that slavery really is part of foreign policy at this time. Can you explain why? Sure, it's a real it's a real driving issue, and 
this may not surprise you, it causes problems between the British and the United States. Uh, it really shows how slavery influenced U.S. foreign policy of expansion. Uh, and again, I don't want to overclaim the U.S. policy towards the acquisition of Texas was not exclusively about slavery, but my argument would be the international relations that that went along with with the acquisition of Texas cannot be understood except uh, uh, with the the issue of slavery in mind. Uh, Now, I want to give credit where credit is due. There's a historian at Princeton University, Matthew Karp, who's written an excellent book uh, that's really one of the only other things on slavery and foreign relations. And he speaks about this vice-like grip of slaveholders and their allies on the executive branch during these days. And that's absolutely correct. Uh, there's, I won't get into the prehistory of, of all of Texas, but the 1836 Declaration of Independence brought about an attempt by the, the new Texas government to get diplomatic recognition. That takes a while. Uh, and part of the reason that it takes a while is because of slavery, uh, that uh, a couple administrations, including uh, that of Andrew Jackson, didn't want to exacerbate sectional problems over slavery in the United States. But we get to 1841, and William Henry Harrison takes office, and he's our shortest-serving president here. He dies after a month. Uh, so... President Tyler takes over, and he was, as one historian calls him, an ardent expansionist or something along those lines. Uh, And so the Whig Party, uh, which had elected Harrison and Tyler, was not so keen on expansionism. Uh, And now Tyler gets, for all intents and purposes, abandoned by his party. This frees him up to seek expansion and to look to Southerners. Uh, well, the Southerners were alarmed by British policy in Texas. They said, look, the British are trying to prevent the United States from acquiring Texas, which was true. And the British are trying to foist abolition on Texas, which was not true. And a key event, one of the reasons I love uh, diplomatic history and policy history in general is because contingency and individuals matter. In 1843, a fellow by the name of Abel P. Upshur becomes Secretary of State, and this guy is a pro-slavery extremist. And now annexation becomes absolutely a a passion of the Tyler administration. Uh, And their worst fear is that British intervention to abolitionize Texas would be an existential threat to U.S. slavery if Texas is abolitionized you just get a number of problems, one of which is quite simply slaves will have a place to run away to. Southern slaves, especially in places like Louisiana and Arkansas, will have a a place to run away to. And this would present a a threat to slavery in the United States. Now, the British diplomatically assure the U.S. that they have no, no plans to abolitionize Texas, that they'd like to see it happen, but this is not a main element of their policy. Well, Upshur and company don't buy this. Uh, and then 
to cut to the chase, uh, one of the more interesting anecdotes is in the book uh, that in 1844, February of 1844, I think, uh, Upshur was killed in an explosion and was replaced by none other than our friend John C. Calhoun, who is famous in American history for his advocacy for slavery. Uh, Calhoun goes uh, pretty strongly into the pro-slavery uh, foreign policy, arguing that, that it's a positive good, that we speak of the positive good argument. Slavery is not, not a, uh, a necessary evil, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing for for the slaves. And he goes into all this uh, uh, census data and so forth to prove it in a letter to the British Foreign Secretary, the Packenham letter, which uh, makes this just a, a sectional issue. Uh, and the Whigs now join the fight led by their, their uh, hero, Henry Clay, uh, who says, look, if we intervene in Texas, if we try to take Texas, we're going to inherit hostilities with with Mexico, which has an on and off war with Texas going on, uh, we can be pushed by slavery to try and do this. Uh, and what it will do is is endanger the Union itself uh, in fights over region. And finally, if if we do if we take Texas on, we might get the intervention of Britain, which you know, you people are saying wants to abolitionize. We might get French intervention. We might get both, and we'll be up against. Uh, two major European powers. Supporters played on the pro-slavery angle. They played on what we've talked about before, Anglophobia. And finally, it gets through not by, the uh, annexation of Texas gets through not by a Senate vote, uh, which came out to be uh, massively against an annexation treaty, but in the United States, uh, a treaty doesn't become ratified until the Senate votes two-thirds to ratify it. It didn't even come close to a majority. Tyler decides to do a workaround there and introduces a joint resolution to acquire uh, to acquire Texas, and it passes by, by two votes. Uh, and so it's not done by treaty, it's done by joint resolution. And slavery had played a key role in the policymakers' thinking, this was the, the Tyler administration was strongly uh, pro-slavery, and the push for Texas was, as I've said again, uh, there were a number of reasons for it, but slavery was a, a major one, and this brings about the potential for significant international conflict uh, that that these policymakers, who had the the vice-like grip, as as Professor Carp says. Uh, were were perfectly willing to risk in order to advance slavery and protect slavery in the United States. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so exactly on that theme, right, the, the length to which 
pro-slavery policymakers were willing to go, you argue also explains another aspect of American foreign policy, um, which is the willingness for the U.S. to forge transatlantic connections in sub-Saharan Africa, which you say in the book um, is, quote, with great reluctance. Um, so first, why, were, why was that reluctance? Um, but more importantly, how did slavery mean that the U.S. got more involved in sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, great. So uh, the first part of the question, why with great reluctance, the U.S. Uh, administrations uh, that followed the Monroe administration were looking to cut back on or at least limit uh, ties with with the the eastern part of the Atlantic and had no desire to become involved in relations of any kind with Western Africa. And, you know, what you've got to keep in mind is something that the Americans, the American policymakers didn't really uh, understand it in any, any significant depth, which was uh, uh, imperial policy on the part of Europeans and especially the British and the French in West Africa. So the U.S. government, uh, the federal government, uh, had this goal really since early on in the Republic to rid the United States of free blacks. But it proved unwilling to foster the international connections needed to achieve this, which I think gets to your, the second part of your Question: The issue had been raised significantly in 1819 when the Slave Trade Act was passed. Uh, it said the president could remove free persons of color from the United States. Okay, but where? Where should they go? Uh, this was unclear. Uh, and this organization called the American Colonization Society had said, oh, well, uh, it's a private organization, this is this is significant, said the president could purchase land in Africa and resettle people there, uh, resettle freed blacks uh, in the United States, and also what was really necessary is to the extent that the United States was was intercepting slavers, where, what do you do with the, the, the people on the slave ships who are, who are liberated? Where do you take them? Where do they go? Uh, and Monroe issues this message to Congress in 1819, saying that the United States can establish a station in West Africa, whatever that meant. Uh, and even the establishment of a station, uh, which would be a very limited thing, and primarily a private operation run by the American Colonization Society, uh, proves to be again, a uh, element that brings conflict with the, the British. The British have a colony that they're establishing that they're quite committed to in Sierra Leone. And the United States station is going to be close to, to Sierra Leone. And as I said, the, United, the American policymakers uh, just failed to understand the interests and policies of European colonial powers, the British did not want a U.S. settlement, regardless of what we were going to call it, contiguous with their own. Well, what happens is that this private 
organization, the American Colonization Society, the ACS, gets mingled with the American federal government in trying to establish this entity in West Africa. And the result is the founding of Liberia, but the United States takes very limited commitments here. Washington refuses to ever call this a colony and never really viewed the success or failure of Liberia as vital to U.S. interests, as the British did with with Sierra Leone. Uh, So you end up with a a very odd situation. Uh, The U.S. is committed to getting rid of of persons of color, freed persons of color, uh, and they want to send them to West Africa. But they also want and this comes out, I think, significantly in the book, really limit the extent of their commitment to that entity uh, to the extent that the um, the American Colonization Society is all but dead by 1830 because they had, all from the beginning, assumed that they wouldn't be successful without significant help from the federal government. American states intervene. Maryland takes the lead and, and others follow. Uh, and one of the reasons that they do is the 1831 Nat Turner Rebellion, the slave rebellion that says that causes, uh, especially Southerners to say, oh my Lord, we need to remove all free blacks. Uh, seems a life or death issue. Uh, and the states really helped Liberia thrive and grow. But the very success of Liberia, its growth, uh, its success, brings about a threat of conflict with European imperial powers because the the British Navy uh, was preventing Liberia from imposing tariffs on British goods. The French were claiming lands uh, within the limits of Liberian settlements. And it was vague as to what America would do to uh, what America would do to uh, foster and protect Liberia from from these issues. Uh, And the British finally say, you can't have it both ways. Is this this your colony and you'll protect it or not? Uh, And the American response is is kind of uh, odd and anomalous. Uh, There's a quandary. Uh, The United States wanted to extend protection to Liberia, but didn't want to declare the, the Liberian independent colony, I mean, sorry, colony, but it also couldn't recognize it as an independent nation due to domestic political concerns. Uh, so we're sa- we're not saying it's a colony, right? We don't have colonies, we're a republic, uh, and we don't want to take on the responsibility that a colony would have. On the other hand, and I hope I'm not making this more complicated than it needs to be, uh, we couldn't recognize Liberia as an independent country that needs to that needs to see to its own affairs, because to do that, this is where slavery is so significant. Uh, to do that would be to undercut this narrative that slaveholders had that that blacks were incapable wherever they were of self government and and economic success that they needed they needed white uh, oversight to do this, and so recognizing uh, Liberia as independent would completely undercut that that narrative of, of black inferiority 
And so Liberia is just going to remain in this anomalous position, right? Founded by Americans, but not an American colony, possessing sovereign rights, but not recognized by the United States as a sovereign nation. Uh, and, you know, so the result will be, uh, to make it, to make uh, a long story a little shorter, uh, slavery was really the determining factor in a lot of what the United States is going to do in, in sub-Saharan Africa because of this, this desire on the one hand to have a place to take freed persons of color, but on the other hand, to avoid having any situation in which they're forced to recognize the, uh, a government run by, by, uh, blacks. And, uh, finally, finally, again, we get to 1862 and Lincoln, recognizes Liberia and also recognizes Haiti. Uh, and one of the main reasons for this recognition is the sense that this would be essentially a stop to the British who wanted this to happen. They had recognized uh, Liberia early on, They and the French had too. They insisted on special trade privileges as a, uh, as a trade-off for recognition, but Lincoln really does takes this action again uh, in order to placate the British during the American Civil War. So again, it's not solved by any problem other than the desire not to see the United States broken in two. And this sort of, I, I love that you phrased it as a quandary, um, because it really does come through quite clearly. Um, we, the, the idea seems to be we, we want these people to not be here, so they have to go somewhere else. Yep. Somewhere else, um, far away. Yeah. Somewhere very far away. But then once they're there, people start asking questions about what they are. And we don't really want to have to deal with them. On the other hand, we cannot, without undermining everything else, allow them to deal with themselves. Um, and this sort of twisted logic seems to inform rather a lot of the problems that the US finds itself in in this sense. So to continue our whistle-stop tour of American foreign policy, um, let's move back across the Atlantic Ocean the other way to Cuba. And you argue that in the 1850s, Cuba, quote, presented both a threat and opportunity. Um, and then you talk about how, again, the Tyler administration, we've already mentioned that, um, you say that they were willing to pledge war, even with Britain, to preserve Spanish rule and therefore slavery, and that there was such an emphasis on ensuring that Cuba remained a slave place, even to the extent of the US going, well, if we have to annex it in order to keep it that way, then fine. Um, so can you, is that is that it? Is, is that, what, why were US politicians so determined to annex Cuba at, during this time period? Yeah, so that's great. This gives me another opportunity to emphasize that it's not just monocausal, but that slavery is a major factor here. Uh, initially, the American policy had, had been that as long as the the island remained in the hands of Spain, everything was fine. Uh, you look at a map, uh, and Cuba is you know sits athwart the the trade routes to the Mississippi River, which was absolutely vital. And so what the United States needed was a country that was, it's a balance, it's almost a quandary, again, if I can use that word, strong enough to keep slaves down, 
but weak enough that they can't prevent the United States from uh, trade. They can't bottle the United States up in, in the Caribbean. And so Spain is a perfect power for that, strong enough, but not too strong. But then Americans become concerned, for instance, uh, that this will turn into uh, another Haiti. Uh, there's a rumor in the in the 1840s and 1843 that British plan uh, planned to abolitionize Cuba, and so we get this what's called the Black Military Republic scare uh, that the British are uh, trying to abolitionize Cuba because the United States won't try to take it. If you've got all these freed slaves, the United States is absolutely not going to take on all these freed slaves, right? Uh, but the fear of abolition, 90 miles from the shores of, of Florida, again, is perceived as presenting an existential threat to slavery in the United States to the extent, as you said, that the United States is willing to uh, to try and acquire it, in fact, anxious to try and acquire it. Uh, and slavery is a factor there for a couple reasons. Uh, an another one that has to be mentioned is domestic politics. The uh, balance in the Senate is an issue. People in the slaveholding South thought, well, if we take on Cuba, it becomes a slaveholding state. We'll get two more senators, or maybe if we break it into three country, uh, three states, excuse me, we'll end up with six slave senators. And you know, how terrific would that be? But the other key motivator was international, that there was this fear that Spain was becoming too weak and that it would it would succumb to pressure from the British who were just desperate uh, in a lot of American thinking, were just desperate to abolitionize uh, Cuba and, and, excuse me, and, and uh, turned over to, turned over to uh, uh, black Cubans, Afro-Cubans. Uh, and so with this happening, the, the British, the French, and obviously Spain tried to get the United States to renounce any interest in, in acquiring Cuba in the future. And the United States absolutely refuses to, to do so, uh, which this is in the early 1850s, 1852, uh, refuses to do so, which scares the heck out of Madrid, which had been the nation that's tried to get this this ball rolling. Uh, then we get to the yeah the Pierce administration, which just has this incredible desire for Cuba, uh, which is just exacerbated by what's known as the Africanization scare. Uh, this idea that that under pressure from Britain, Spain is going to Africanize to turn Cuba over to Afro-Cubans, and the fear of the loss of Cubans, uh, Cuba's slave system is the key motivator in this. The, uh, Spain would free the slaves and arm them to keep the United States from taking, from taking Cuba, and that this would threaten American slavery. Uh, and in the end, the United States is so uh, committed to this idea of maintaining slavery in Cuba that's willing to risk conflict with three European powers, Britain, France, and Spain, uh, maybe at the same time. What finally essentially solves the problem is 
one, that the United States is being riven by sectional issues and doesn't need to deal with the question of acquisition of more slave territory. Uh, but secondly, Spain just refused to sell. They're just not willing to, you know, the, the Polk administration tries to buy uh, Cuba. The Pierce administration tries to buy Cuba or take it. Uh, and Spain simply refuses to get rid of it. Uh, and so in the end, uh, the, the uh, one historian has said that it's quite amazing. I don't have the exact quote, but it's quite amazing that Cuba never became part of the United States because it just seemed like it was uh, destined to do so. Uh, this is Robert May, who uh, wrote a really good book on the idea of uh, Southerners being, as he put it, uh, possessed by the dream of a Caribbean empire. Uh, and that never, that never came to fruition. Uh, largely because of international, uh, the international situation, uh, Spain refused to surrender Cuba, and Spain was backed by Britain and France. And the United States just didn't, in the end, although willing to take on the risk of conflict, didn't have the power to wrest it from, wrest Cuba from Spain. And this is, as you said, the idea that America would be willing to go up against three European powers, potentially at the same time. Um, certainly the idea of American interest in Cuba is, I think, probably well known. It was to myself and to the listeners. But to realize quite the extent of it um, was really quite interesting. And to therefore come to the end of your book, obviously, as we know, just from the title that you talk about until 1865, um, we know that things change pretty significantly in 1865 with President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation at the end of the American Civil War. So given that we now have discussed this history of difficulty in foreign relations, friction in particular between the US and Britain on this issue of slavery, how did different European nations react to Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation that seems to, at least on the face of it, maybe resolve the issue? Uh, yeah, it doesn't and this came as a surprise to me and I'm I will not I will say I'm not the first person to notice this but uh, I try to play it out significantly the idea that I had come into this research with was that once the Emancipation Proclamation is uh, it goes into effect that Britain couldn't possibly have intervened and in fact that France couldn't possibly have intervened and if if Britain doesn't uh, take a, a role in intervening and France doesn't, Spain's not going to. And so although the Southerners thought, oh, Spain has Spain has uh, still possessions with slavery, they're a, they'll be a brother country, uh, they're not going to act without the two bigger powers doing so. And I should say intervention in this case doesn't necessarily mean military intervention, it can mean diplomatic intervention, right? So the idea that Diplomatically, they try to bring the United States and the South, the secessionist South, together uh, at a at the table and negotiate something. And uh, Lincoln and Seward understood that if they're sitting down with them, that's essentially serving as recognizing their uh, the success of secession. So they're going to refuse to do that. And I think that I'm not the only one who thought well that after the Emancipation Proclamation, 
that was never in the cards. Uh, so, uh, to let's see, to look at this uh, from from that perspective, uh, U.S. diplomats believed what I had believed. Uh, diplomats abroad. So you've got, uh, you know, diplomats in in Vienna, St. Petersburg, uh, in. Uh, in Madrid, in London, saying, look, emancipation is is the thing that will, uh, as the American uh, minister in Vienna said at the time, it will strike the sword from England's hands, you know, once the, uh, once emancipation is proclaimed and the war is proclaimed by Lincoln to be about slavery, uh, that's it. Britain won't risk any kind of intervention at all. Uh, and it, that's not necessarily so. Uh, and what I found absolutely fascinating was the British press, uh, some in the British press were so worried that emancip- the Emancipation Proclamation would bring about what they called servile insurrection. So in other words, the idea that all these uh, slaveholders and their families would be slaughtered in bed and so forth. The London Times actually uh, believe that Lincoln's goal was to incite slave uprising in the South and cause murders and all that kind of thing. Uh, and as one historian, uh, Professor Andrew Fry has, has noted, the reception of the proclamation was generally negative in Europe and didn't necessarily mean that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't necessarily mean that international intervention was over. I mean, Napoleon III uh, after the, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, as your readers, uh, readers, listeners will know, uh, the, the emperor of, of France in 1863 was serious about a plan for mediation. Uh, and so another presumption that I found to be wrong is that France wouldn't do anything without the British acting first. But the conclusion that I really came to was that, uh, okay, Lincoln is successful. Lincoln is successful. There's no European intervention. He and his very anglophobic Secretary of State, uh, Seward, uh, were able to uh, conduct the Civil War without without British or French intervention. Uh, slavery was not the primary issue for Britain. The primary issue was the United States' arming to the teeth and they don't want to provoke a strong United States into war. And Seward made it absolutely clear, if you do anything to aid the South or even intervene diplom- try to intervene diplomatically, we will view this as an unfriendly act. So I, I think that's the primary reason that the British did intervene. But slavery was, was certainly a factor. Uh, and the, the way I, I put it in the book is it's less an advantage to the North in its diplomacy, to the United States in its diplomacy, that it was a disadvantage to the South. The South, the Southern diplomats in Europe were always dealing with general European hostility in Britain and France, especially to slavery. And so while it's not, slavery is not as much an advantage to Lincoln and Seward, it's a real disadvantage to the South, which always had a negative presumption against it. Uh, and 
I, I just finally come to the conclusion that at least with Britain, it's hard to imagine a significant intervention in the American Civil War that would have helped the, the secessionist South in independence after the Emancipation Proclamation. But I think fear of American power was probably more significant uh, than slavery, but sl- which is an odd thing in itself, given that we now really understand, or most of us understand, that slavery is a primary issue in the Civil mm-hmm. War. No, that's really interesting. I think you're, um, a lot of us would be sort of surprised by that reaction. Um, and to come then to my traditional penultimate question, um, obviously, listeners are getting some taste of the book. I've read it and therefore had more of a taste of the book, but you've really engaged with this for obviously a substantial period of time and in quite a lot of detail. So if you could let us in behind the scenes a little bit and share with us something that you came across or discovered in the process of researching and writing this book that surprised you, whether or not it actually made it into the book, it can be something big or small. You've already mentioned a few things that you weren't expecting coming in, Um, but is there anything in particular that really jumped out at you? Well, yeah, there, there, yeah, that's a really good question. There are a, a few things that surprised me, uh, you know, and I mentioned the one about uh, uh, European non-intervention in the Civil War, but uh, a small one that I'll mention is uh, another thing from teaching. You know, the students always want to play this game when you're teaching diplomatic history professor, who is the best secretary of state in history and who was the worst, and now I've got Abel P. Upshur as the worst. So I can find, I always said, oh, you can't answer that question. But the guy who turns American foreign policy uh, to the beck and call of the pro-slavery faction in the United States, yeah, I'll put him at the bottom. Uh, The one thing that really surprised me was the availability, I mean, just fundamentally uh, from a threshold issue of Russian newspapers and magazines, a few of them, a few of them, from the Civil War period, the American Civil War period. And one of the things that absolutely fascinated me, I won't go on too long about this, but this this was one of the, the parts that I most enjoyed doing because it was so surprising, was the hostility that Russian liberal intellectuals had towards the London Times and uh, other British and French newspapers. Uh, and that broader current in some aspects of of, uh, British thinking and society that Lincoln was so awful that that, uh, uh, slave insurrections would take place if there there were to be uh, uh, emancipation. And maybe it shouldn't have surprised me as much as it did because at exactly the same time we're talking about this process that doesn't happen in one fell swoop of uh, Russia liberating its serfs, and what it it's very difficult for Russians in that time to talk about serfdom. It's a lot easier to talk about American slavery and let people read things into it. Uh, but the the really strong criticism of what one might want to call pro southern British and French. From the Russian side of things, and especially their presumption that these these folks were pro-Southern, uh, really was one of the most interesting things that I dealt with in the entire book. And the fact that there's 
there are some newspapers that weren't ephemera and I was able to find them uh, on film was just, uh, you know, one of those historians treasure troves, one of those aha moments where you say, I can't believe this This is wonderful. That is exactly why I asked this question um, to get answers like that. So thank you very much. Um, And then for my final question, which I do always feel a bit bad about asking, but I am very curious. Um, your book was published officially about a month ago, um, which obviously means that you must therefore be working on something next. Mm-hmm. So if you have anything to share with us, what are you working on now or next? Sure. So uh, thank you for letting me talk about this. Uh, I am currently on a research trip. I'm calling you from uh, or, or talking to you from Indiana uh, in, in the Midwest. Uh, my home territory. Uh, I'm working on, and I'm here to work on a a book that I've made some progress in already uh, that's called uh, Less Than Victory, American uh, Catholics in the Vietnam War. And so I'm very excited about this topic. I found some really good stuff this week. And so this will, you know, to avoid going on and on about my own work, uh, this will be the next book, uh, which will be, uh, as you can tell, I move around chronologically. I like uh, addressing whatever interests me at the time. Uh, and so I teach a course in the Vietnam War, and I just, I, I, I want, and I've been doing it for quite some time. And I'd just like to add that this came up in a course that I teach on U.S. peace movements, that I, one of the pillars, one of what I call the light motifs of the class is religion in American foreign relations. Uh, and peace movements and students were asking me about this and that and you're always dealing with Protestants what about what about Catholics in the in the Vietnam War peace movement and I said I don't know that much let me find something on this and there, there are things on certain aspects of it but not uh, a uh, a major treatment of it so that's what I'm working on now and hoping not to get scooped and then I've got a second project that I'll I'll introduce just very briefly, which is on the the concept of international relations theory of paradiplomacy, so diplomacy by subnational actors. And I'm doing some background work right now on American governors and their foreign relations, which I just think is really interesting. I wish I could come out with a book today because you've got uh, governors in states in the United States now who are talking about uh, divestment and sanction from from Russia as a result of the war in Ukraine. So I wish I wish this book were coming out right now, but it's going to be some years, some years until this one's ready. Well, I'm guessing that it will still be quite timely. Um, and for the book about um, Catholic protests in or peace movement in Vietnam, I think. Well, this book, it sounds like, came out of questions from your students, um, and it seems to have turned out quite well. So hopefully, that one will too. Um, But in the meantime, while you are off in the archives finding all sorts of cool things, our listeners can read your current book titled Chained to History, Slavery and U.S. Foreign Relations to 1865, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. Thank you very much for being with us today, Dr. Steve Brady. Thank you so much. This was fun.